Good to be back in God's house here. Uh, our text as we're going this morning is uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 6 to 10. And if I were to title it this morning, I would call it Godliness Brings True Riches. Uh, and as you'll recall, as you look at our text here this morning, we're jumping right in the middle of a thought. I had to break it off last time. Uh, we were looking at uh, basically verses 3 to 5, which was talking about people who are teaching doctrines different than what Paul has taught Timothy. You can go back up and read it yourself. I'm not teaching that again. But today we're jumping right in the middle of a thought. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're picking up at verse 6, and we're going to show what true doctrine brings, what true godliness brings. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read it. Uh, we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll get to looking at it. It goes like this, 1 Timothy 6, 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveteth after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. As I say, that's our text today, and it's jumping right in the middle of a thought. So I apologize for that, but we only have so much time on a Sunday. We'll have a word of prayer. We'll get to breaking this down. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And I thank you for the precision of your word. I can't help but be struck by just how concise you made this. You were being very specific, as you always are. We thank you for it. We ask that you'll guide us through it. Let your Holy Spirit show us just how we can apply this to our lives. Help us to change in accordance with it. In your word, name I pray. Amen. So today, as we look at this passage, he starts right off. Again, we're in the middle of a thought. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Very popular verse. Everybody knows that verse. Today we're going to see Paul define a little bit of what that godliness looks like. And how it's different than the false teachings, which we looked at last time. We looked at false teachings, what the false teacher looks like. This time we're going to see a little bit of what godliness looks like. Some aspects. This isn't all-encompassing. Uh, but this kind of godliness, in co combination with the contentment that naturally comes with it, is great gain indeed. We're going to see that. By the way, verse 6, as short as it is, is kind of our key verse today. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So what does Paul mean when he speaks of contentment? What do you suppose he means by contentment? Well, we can get a little better picture of that by looking at what the Greek word is. It's autarkia. Autarkia. It only shows up one other time in the New Testament. It's a very specific word. I can't help but 
I'm going to point out some other very specific words as we go through here. Paul is using very precise language as he's going through here. Some of the words we're going to look at, he only uses here. He's, he's being very specific. You don't always get that with the English. We read through all contentment. We see contentment in all kinds of other places. The fact is, this word is only used one other place. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8, which says, God is able to make all grace abound unto you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, that phrase, all sufficiency in all things, is autarkia. That's contentment. Having all sufficiency in all things is contentment. And that you may abound unto every good work. Did you know that God will always give you exactly what you require? He will always give you exactly what you require. It reminds me of what Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 8 says. Let's go, let's take a look at that. Proverbs 30 and verse 8. Not a verse we look to very often, so I, I want to make sure we look at it. Solomon's talking. He says, remove far from me vanity and lies. Boy, we see vanity and lies all over the place, don't we? Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. He's asking for exactly what I need at an exactly this time. That's all we really need, isn't it? All I really need is exactly what I need. Simple as that sounds. And when we realize that God will provide for our needs, then we're going to find our minds having that inner contentment that's spoken of here in 1 Timothy. Now, I told you, autarkia is only used one other time, and we already looked at it. The adjective term of autarkia, remember, in Greek, you can, you can make uh, verbs into adjectives. Uh, and it's, it's actually a very flexible language. We can see the adjective form of it used in Philippians chapter 4. Let's go over there. It's worth our while. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11. Oops, wrong direction. Made a wrong turn. Can I tell you a story about a wrong turn that I made uh, this week? I was driving to a job down in Chicopee, Mass. Should be an easy drive, right? There's construction on my exit off of 91. So my GPS took me down a different road than where I've traditionally gone to this customer before. And I ended up, I'm driving along, minding my own business, drive through this nice, beautiful suburb. All of a sudden, there's a guard shack with a couple of uh, Air Force guys. It's, uh, I forget what the Air Force Base is down there. Gentlemen, I seem to have made a wrong turn. Yes, sir, you did. (laughs) They were very good. They steered me back. But I made a wrong turn. I made a wrong turn in my Bible. It's the only reason I... That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Paul says, uh, wrong chapter, Not that I speak in respect to want, for I have learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content. That's using autarkia as an adjective. Now, I'll give you a little bit of uh, Greek background here. I mean, it's one thing to look at Greek language. Uh, we'll have a bit of Greek 
background, this idea of inner contentment was one of the very few points that both Stoics and Cynics, Stoical and Cynical philosophers, could agree on as one of the best character traits that a person could have. Stoics and Cynics hated each other. They couldn't agree on anything, but they agreed on this one. Having inner contentment is a good thing. Now, I'm not endorsing Stoicism, and I'm not endorsing Cynicism. Anybody who knows me knows that I'm more of a Stoic than a Cynic, but uh, I'm not endorsing either one of those, and neither is Paul. But what I am saying is that even the pagan people of Paul's day realized that contentment is a key to mental peace. Contentment, simple contentment. You can turn on any media you want. You don't even have to turn on electric media. You can get a newspaper and you're going to find all kinds of reasons why you hadn't ought to be content. They call them advertisements. You shouldn't be happy with this food. You shouldn't be happy with this car. You shouldn't be happy with any aspect of your life. This world is driven to make you discontent. That's what this world runs on is discontent and keeping you discontent so you buy something else. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Even today, psychologists agree that most of people's mental issues, which they complain of, stem from a lack of contentment in life. Almost all mental issues stem from a root of lack of contentment. Now, I'm here to tell you that true contentment that we're talking about here can only come through Jesus Christ. There is no other way to be content in this world than through Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul was saying in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11. And back up to uh, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7, uh, where he says, And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Do you want that peace of God that passes all understanding? That, can, that sounds like contentment, doesn't it? It's going to keep your hearts and minds, but it only comes through Christ Jesus. See, the false teachers of Ephesus didn't teach the contentment that comes from following Christ. And a lot of churches today don't either. Their godliness has a different source and a different quality, and that's why it doesn't have that lasting contentment which Paul speaks of here. Only a true Christian will ever be able to know the contentment that God offers. Let's look at verse 7. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. This verse starts right off with a reference to we. So he's talking to Christians, talking to believers. And he then gives us a reason why we can have this contentment that God offers. For we, you and me, all of us here, brought nothing into this world. I didn't bring anything into this world. Did any of you bring anything into this world? No, you didn't. And you're not going to bring anything out either. I'm here to tell you. Uh, you know, 
this idea of us not bringing anything into this world, I can tell you that is a fact. That is a fact. I've been uh, witness to a couple of births, and I can assure you that nobody arrives in this world carrying a suitcase. Nobody shows up with a suitcase. Uh, in fact, in Job chapter 1, verse 21, he says, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return hither. I mean, when you're leaving this world, you're not even wearing your own clothes. You're wearing clothes that the coroner put on, or the uh, funeral director put on you. He puts on a suit for you. It's not even yours. You're in a box somebody else bought for you. Since we bring nothing into the world at birth, and we leave this world with nothing, any material gain that we might make on our time here on earth is not an essential part of life, is it? Nothing. These clothes are not bad. They're not an essence to my life. Car, it's not even mine. The company bought the car. Uh, it's not an essential part of life. That's why material wealth can never satisfy, don't you see? Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 15, Solomon, the wealthiest man who's ever lived, said, As he came forth from his mother's womb, naked shall he return as he came, and take nothing of his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. I came here naked. I'm leaving here naked. Yes, I've labored and I've accumulated things, but I can't carry any of that away in my hands. Now, these verses that we've just looked at kind of fly in the face of what the false teachers taught back in uh, verse 5 last time. Remember, they're talking about perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. They suppose that gain is godliness. Now, verse 6, we see godliness with contentment is great gain. That's true gain. See, teaching that gain is godliness starts from a flawed premise, and we talked about that the last time we were together. You, you can't come to an accurate conclusion when you start with a flawed premise. I, I beat that to death. If you want to listen to the recording, listen to the recording. I'm not teaching it again. Well, I already taught that. But birth and death show us just a, how little material goods really mean in this life. Paul isn't telling us that we shouldn't have material goods either. Don't get that wrong. Paul's not telling us we shouldn't have material goods. Rather, he's trying to put it into a greater perspective. See, Jesus taught in uh, Luke chapter 12 and verse 15, For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth. I'll tell you this uh, story before Jeremiah knows this one, because he and I were talking about it just a little while ago. Uh, when they found the tomb of Charlemagne, they f people were wondering where in the world he was buried and People didn't know it for a long, long time. They finally found the tomb where Charlemagne was buried. He's sitting on a throne. They buried him sitting on a throne. He's just a skeleton, but his finger was pointed at a Bible. Anybody want to take a stab at what his finger... So some, he, he didn't die pointing to this verse in the Bible. Somebody posed him this way, and his finger was pointing to a verse in the Bible. Take a stab at what that verse might be. 
What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and loseth his own soul? That's pretty telling. See, to have a materialistic view of this life is just a superficial way to look at life. True godliness realizes that there are much deeper things to pay attention to. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content, verse 8. Now in that word, in this verse, the word for food could very easily be translated as sustenance. Just sustenance. All I need is something to sustain me. Interestingly, both the word for food, diatrophy, and the word for raiment, skepesma, are used only here in all of the New Testament. Now, we see food all through the New Testament, but not this specific word. We see raiment all through the New Testament, but we're not skepesma. These are very odd words. These are not typical words. You're never going to pick... The, if you're just reading your King James English Bible, you're never going to realize what I'm telling you right now. Paul specifically chose these very specific words to make a point here. We only need the barest essentials. We ought to be content with having our very barest needs met. That's why Paul chose these very specific words. Again, God will always provide exactly what you need. There's Elijah in a cave next to a brook. He's got the water, the brook's right there. All he needs is a little bit of food. God brought ravens to bring food to him. You don't need anything more, Elijah. Just this. Second Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 19 says, My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Do you want God's strength to be perfect in you? Then you need to be in a weak state. You don't need to look to God if you think you're providing for everything yourself. If you realize that God is the one providing for you, then you're truly strong. One of my personal favorites is in uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have. For he saith, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. It's funny, I got that same concept I was reading uh, in Isaiah chapter 43 this morning. Isaiah chapter 43 comes right after Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 is a totally different topic. 43 is the next one over. Isaiah is predicting that they're going to be carried off to Babylon. And God says, I'm going to be with you. Even when you go into Babylon, I'm going to be with you. Because I am the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, 
your Savior. That's how God introduces Himself, Isaiah 43 and verse 3. Once we're aware that our needs are met and God is with us, what more could we possibly ask for? Not only is He meeting our needs, but He's also right there with us. It's kind of arrogant of me to ask for anything more than that. And again, Paul isn't encouraging us to give up our material possessions here. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's asking us to accept the things that come, knowing that God will see us through. What's going to happen to me this afternoon? I don't know. It doesn't really matter because I am certain my God will give me exactly what I need. I don't have to worry about a thing. Now, from Paul's own personal experience, Paul's seen God bring him through trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. He lists them all in various places. He's been to jail. He's been shipwrecked. The false teachers in Ephesus here are pushing the idea that godliness would bring financial gain. We looked at that last week, verse 5. Just like health and wealth preachers today, right? We don't have to go turn on the TV right now. I guarantee you can find somebody that's teaching you a health and wealth gospel. I guarantee it. The problem is, that's not a reality for most believers, is it? That's not a reality for most believers. Most believers in this world are under severe persecution. We talked about that a little bit last time, too. Most of the Christians, the believers in this world, are under severe persecution. Most of them are very dirt poor. You and I are actually in a minority, sitting here in our nice duds, driving here in our car, enjoying comfortable, having the luxury of complaining about the heat. We don't realize how poor most of the rest of the world is living here in Surrey, New Hampshire, but it's a reality. But whether those folks are in Ethiopia, whether they're in Sudan, whether they're in Surrey, New Hampshire, God still provides exactly what we need. We keep on going, don't we? You know, the truth is, I can't even take one more breath without giving God back the last one. That's the truth. But they that will be rich fall into the temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. The allure of material wealth is a very real thing, isn't it? And it's very hard to fight, isn't it? Paul saw that in the first century Ephesus, and he warns Timothy of these dangers. When people seek earthly riches rather than the true riches and the sufficiency that comes from Jesus Christ, then false teaching is bound to come with it. See, it's a lack of focus. I'm going to be working with lasers this upcoming week. Focus is on my mind. Uh, lasers are a very powerful thing. I can burn through a concrete wall or I can burn just one layer off of a sheet of paper. When you're looking at your, next time you're looking at like Triscuit crackers or something, and it gives you a Best Buy date, 
It's on a black field and the black is burnt away and you can see the white letter, numbers and letters. All I did was burn that dye away without burning the paper. It's all focus. All focus. When we lose our focus on Christ, then false teaching creeps in. And that kind of corrupt thinking, that kind of corrupt teaching can't help but bring false doctrine with it. First they fall into temptation, it says. Verse 9. First they fall into temptation, and then a snare. This word fall is only used here and in chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. Uh, the only places it's used in the New Testament. Let's back up to chapter 3 and verse 6. 6 and 7. Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Both other times where this word is used, it's talking about falling into a snare of the devil. There's no reason for me to think that when it's used the one other time, it's not talking about falling into a snare of the devil. The word, if you were curious, is pyrosmos. Oh, pardon me, that's, that pyrosmos is temptation. Uh, that's, t that's what we're falling into. Uh, pyrosmos is temptation. And uh, that's used two times in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Let's go over there. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation, Pyrasmos, taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful and will not suffer you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation, Pyrasmos, also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. It's talking, Pyrasmos is talking about an active drawing away. Something's hooked and you're pulling it in like a fish. Active drawing away. Did you know that Satan is hard at work trying to lure you away from doing the ministry you ought to be doing? If you don't feel the pull, if you don't feel Satan trying to pull you away from your ministry, then you're probably not doing the ministry you ought to be doing. And that's a very real thing. Now that temptation can come from many, many sources. In this verse, it's being drawn away by riches. There are many other things that can draw you away. Riches is one of them, and the desire to gain them. The second thing that happens is they get caught in a snare, it says. Again, verse 9, they fall into temptation and a snare. Very similar language to what we saw in uh, chapter 3 and verse 7, which we just read. Riches can become a trap. That's what a snare is. A snare is a trap. And it'll hold you back, and it'll choke the life out of your ministry. But there's a third thing that can happen. Drawn into foolish and hurtful lusts. 
Now these are the results of the first two steps. First you fall, then you're snared, and then you're pulled into lusts. And once you're caught in these lusts, the end result is that they're going to drown men in destruction and perdition. Drown men in destruction and perdition. The word used to drown here is used one other time in the New Testament. And it's used to describe how the waves almost sank the disciples' ship in Luke 5 and verse 7. Help us, Lord, we're drowning. We're talking about a completely destroyed and shipwrecked ministry. Complete destruction. That is the inevitable result of chasing after material wealth. Don't do it. We'll wrap up with verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The love of money is the root of all evil. Just like Adam and Eve lusting after the forbidden fruit in the garden, chasing after material wealth means that you're no longer satisfied with what God brings to you day by day, right? That's the only reason you're chasing after more, is you're not happy with what God brings you. Elijah, sitting in that cave, could have said, yeah, it's fine that these ravens keep bringing me food, but that's not, you know, I want Chinese today. We laugh, but that's really the truth. If you're chasing after something else, you're not satisfied with what God's already bringing you. See, money isn't the most important thing in life. And neither is any of the other things that you might be lusting after. See, the love of money puts up a wall between you and God. Paul calls the love of money the root of all evil. Now, a root can be hidden for a long time, can't it? A root can be hidden from a long time. I had a tree. I moved into my house about 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago. One of the very first things I had done was I cut down a big old maple tree on the back of the house. And that thing has been putting up sprouts ever since I had it cut down 20-some years ago. I think I finally killed it last summer. If I, I think it put up its last sprout last summer. I've been battling, battling this thing for 20 years. Roots can linger for a long time, just growing underground until they sprout up, and you see the evil that comes out of its rotten base. That stump is rotten. The stump's rotten, but it keeps putting up sprouts. See, the love of money is a hidden motivation it may lie underneath for a long, long time, but it drives up these sprouts out of its rotten base. Luke chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus taught, you can't serve God and mammon. You've got to make a decision. In fact, let's go over there, because I want to read it all the way down to verse 15. That's the only way you get the true teaching. Uh, let's go to Luke 16. I'm going to read 13 to 15. 
No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said unto them, Ye are they which satisfy yourself, or which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. We don't have to look too far to see what's highly esteemed among men. Being rich, being powerful, things like that. The influence that we might try to have. Peddling influence around this world is a really important thing these days. But that's an abomination before the Lord. See, the love of money drives some people. They covet after it, it says. That's the same word that we saw back in chapter 3 and verse 1 when it talked about a bishop. If he desires the office of a bishop, that's the same word, covet. If he covets the office of a bishop, there can be good, there's, there is such a thing as good coveting, a good desire, something you're striving for, some, an aspiration you have. These folks are aspiring to have money. That's what drives them. We all have drives. I have drives. You have drives. Your drive may be something different than, I'm sure your drives are different than mine. Make sure that they're the right ones. The love of money will cause you to err from the faith, he says, verse 10. You've broken your connection with the faith. Remember, that's what Paul's, Paul's wrapping this up. This is the last chapter. Paul's telling Timothy to hold true to the faith that he's given to him. Having this wrong desire is going to break that connection with faith. This faith Paul speaks of is the core doctrines, the teachings that we've gone over and over and over again in this book. See, some people seem to think that they can combine loyalty to God with a following after money. But the fact is, those are two very separate roads. They're not going the same way. And what's going to end up happening is they're going to pierce themselves through with many sorrows, it says. It's an interesting word. This word, Greek word pierce is parapiero. It means to impale. To impale. It was a form of execution. To chase after money will end up with your ministry being impaled like a tortured victim. Watch out. That's all I've got. Brother Fisher, could I call on you to close us in a word of prayer this morning? Thank you, Lord.
Amen.